The Old Testament reading is the 51st Psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, your delight is in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the occasion for this psalm, as I think you might know, is David's sin, the murder of Uriah, adultery with Bathsheba. When you find yourself in a situation where you have nothing to say in your own defense, what do you say? Well, you confess, or at least you should. You should own up to it. Should say that's right, that's me. Now the whole Bathsheba incident is uh, recorded for us in Second Samuel chapters uh, eleven and twelve. And uh, if you have a you know a Bible with you, it'd be helpful to turn to it. I'll read a bit from it, of course. But we really need to have a sense of what occurred in order to have a full appreciation for what David is saying here. We're told in the story that. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, it was the spring of the year. Spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. It's almost like baseball season. It's time for kings to do their job, go out and fight. But uh, David didn't. Instead, he sent other people to do the work. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. We're uh, 
told this uh, in such a way as so as to imply that David really should have been out there, should have been with his men at the front. It was uh, a time in which kings didn't just simply sit back in their palaces and wait for reports. The king was supposed to lead his men in battle, but David decided he'd had enough of the fighting, I guess. He was getting uh, to that point in life where maybe he just don't feel like doing stuff like that anymore. Imagine that, uh, you know, I'm at that point. (laughs) See, some of you are smiling and nodding. You know know what I'm getting at. But uh, he still had a job to do, and he didn't do it. One of the seven deadly sins is sloth. I don't know if you've ever thought much about that list of sins, but I think for many people... There's the question, why does that rise to the level of a deadly sin? Sloth. You think about some animal that moves really slowly, you know, in a tree. Or maybe you just think about yourself on a, well, a Saturday afternoon after a long week of work and you just don't feel like mowing the grass, but you know you should. And you kind of feel slothful at that moment. There's more going on, though, when it comes to the subject of sloth than I think we appreciate. There was a word that Greeks use... Acedia, actually in Greek it was Acadia, but it was transliterated into Latin Acedia. And what it was described uh, as by many uh, early Christians, uh, those who gave themselves to a kind of an ascetic uh, set of practices, they referred to it as the noonday demon. There's a sense in which uh, when you have too much time in your hands and you're not doing what you should do, uh, there's an occasion that is seized by the devil. And you know the saying, idle hands are the devil's plaything. That's actually coined in respect to this, this, in reference to this very thing. Um, What occurs is a kind of listlessness, a sense that nothing matters a meaninglessness. And in order to sort of distract yourself from this ennui, you pick up your phone and you start doom scrolling. You know what I'm getting at. You're looking to preoccupy the mind. You're looking to distract yourself. Pascal talked about this. What is it about human beings, Pascal said, that uh, we can't bear just silence. We have to distract ourselves. There's something about just the weight of existence and our own lethargy and our own sinfulness that makes life seem intolerable and we have to distract ourselves. And so we have, uh, I think without coincidence, David in the afternoon taking a little walk. We're told that's when it occurred. He's taking a little walk and what does he see? I think he sees what he thought he was going to see. He sees Bathsheba. I suspect he'd had his eye on her before this, but we're not told that. Takes an interest in her and invites her to come over. I imagine it was a pretty persuasive invitation. There were a number of men who went to extend the invitation. What do you say when the king says, come? And so she does. Now, this leads to a series of uh, unfortunate events. But those events are a kind of judgment in themselves. She sends a message to David, I'm expecting. Her husband's away. 
This is awkward. What ensues is a cover-up. So cover-ups are not new. We can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden for the first cover-up where people literally covered up, <laughs> right? They did what they shouldn't do. What's the first re- uh, thing that comes to mind? Fig leaves, fig leaves. That's what we need. And then hiding in the bushes. And then the Lord on his afternoon stroll <laughs> through the garden. Hello, where are you? Now the Lord, of course, knows where they are. This is what we call a rhetorical question. <laughs> He's waiting for a response. They don't want to respond. And often in a situation like this, it's understandable why you wouldn't respond. You're in the wrong. Now, he invites Uriah to come home. I mean, this is a man who's been on the front. He invites him to come home, spend a few days, R&R. And then he comes home, and then Uriah is such a virtuous man. (laughs) He doesn't go home. He reports to his lord, the king. David asks questions he already knows answers for. (laughs) And then he says to Uriah, you know, it's tough out there on the front. I've been there myself. I should be there now. (laughs) But uh, why don't you take a break? Go home. Enjoy the company of your wife. Uriah gets to the front gate and sees men sleeping in the open air remembers that his compatriots are there in the front sleeping in the open field, and he says to himself, how can I possibly spend time with my wife? Go home when all of my, my, my uh, companions are you know, suffering like they are. No, I'm going to sleep here in the gate. Word gets back to David. <laughs> and that guy go home. <laughs> so he says, okay, I've got a task for you now, Uriah. I want you to go back to the front. Give Joab this little letter for me. What's in the letter? Instructions. Send Uriah into the heat of the fighting. When he's in the heat of the fighting, withdraw without letting him know. And then tell me what happens. And so, he expect it happens. Uriah finds himself in the heat of the fighting. All of the people he had been loyal to are not loyal to him. They pull back. He's killed. There's a messenger sent to David, and Joab says to the messenger, if the king gets angry about this report, just let him know Joab was in the heat of the fighting, and he is no more. So the report is given to David, and when he gets the report about Uriah's death, he says, don't let it bother you. Don't let it bother you. These things happen. It's the nature of war. And he thinks that's the end of it. There's a prophet, though. His name is Nathan, and he knows all about it. We're not told why Nathan knows about it, but he demonstrates that he does. Because he calls up the king and says, I have something I'd like to tell you. There's a really sad story I've got right here I need to share with you. There were two men. One was a wealthy man. Plenty of sheep. Never, you know, never in want. There was a poor man. One sheep, he loved that sheep. I mean, he loved that sheep so much, he gave it a name. Let that sheep into the house. Had it to the table. Fed it with his own hand. Held it in his arms. 
And then the wealthy man had some visitors, and what do you know? The wealthy man didn't want to cut into his own flock, so he you know, sends some men to get the other man's sheep, brings the sheep to his own house, has it slaughtered, feeds his guests, looks good. And at that moment, David has something to say. And this is fascinating. It's found in chapter 12, and it begins in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. David hears these words from Nathan. You are the man. Man, that's one of the great confrontations in human history. I mean, this is prophet standing in the presence of the king, completely naked in the sense that he's defenseless. He's surrounded, I'm sure, by armed men at this point. And all it would take to continue the cover-up is just David saying, get rid of this person, he's bothering me. But he doesn't. In fact, as the story unfolds, David owns his sin. Isn't that remarkable? Think about all the people you've known that can't own their faults. Think about yourself and how difficult it is for you to own your faults. But in that moment, David is given the grace to say, I have sinned against the Lord. You see that in verse 13. Some things to think about this uh, with regard to this. Even though David comes clean, there are consequences to his sin. It's not as though, hey, don't worry about it, no problem, go back to work, these things happen, say la vie. No, Nathan says there are consequences. You can see the consequences listed there uh, when he describes you know, God's response, beginning in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, Nevertheless, because you, uh, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan left his house. Strong stuff. As I've noted, this story is instructive for us because in so many cases we've done the exact same thing. We may not have done something as, uh, just hor- as horrific or as awful or as... Uh, terrible as David. Nevertheless, we've done things. And furthermore, David does all of this after some great work. Have you you ever thought about that? I mean, this is after the episode with Goliath. This is after, you know, I'm sure a number of great songs (laughs) that we sing to this day in the Psalter. This is a man who's after God's own heart. And yet, this happens. It's so common. It's not just uh, something that we can look at and say, look what happened to David. We can think about our own lives that way, can't we? 
Think about what God has done for, you know, you and me and how, you know, there's this episode where, you know, God gives us the grace to be faithful and there's a great story that we can share with other people and then just, you know, the calendar, you know, the day changes and something else happens that's completely different in in character. And you can say, well, that's out of character for me. Well, is it? Let's think about this a little more. Let's look at his confession, the confession that we have recorded for us in the psalm. He says uh, in verse 4 something remarkable. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What about Uriah? You ever thought about that? He kind of experienced some sin. (laughs) You know, Bathsheba, you know, there, there are some other people that were involved here. What is uh, David getting at when he just kind of uh, leaps over them and goes straight to the Lord and says, against you, I've, you know, has this uh, evil been performed? Well, who were, uh, whose people were those people? Whose laws were broken? Those people belonged to the Lord. That's something we need to remember. The people we spend our time with, those people don't belong to us. Even when you're the king, (laughs) those people are not your possessions. Those people are people, of course, but they are the creation or creations of God. And the laws that we've been given that are intended to order our lives with each other obviously are are, uh, helpful in terms of Uh, our own needs and interests. But God is glorified when we treat each other the way that his law says we should. And so God has a vested interest in people and in our conduct. So in every case, even though there are other people to consider and there are victims, ultimately God is the one who's offended. And David notes this. Says against you have I sinned. Then we're told that the problem goes really deep. That's what I what I was implying when I talked about character. The problem runs deep. So how deep does the problem go? We are told in verses five and six. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is uh, one of the passages of scripture that theologians have used to justify the doctrine of original sin. And one of the things that's, I think, uh, really potent about this particular verse is uh, David is looking back to his own birth and to his nature, uh, even as a, as, as a, as an infant. Um, you know, we sometimes will say something, you know, there's a colloquial way of putting this, you know, when we're talking about innocence. Innocent as a baby. Okay. In some sense, that's obviously the case. I mean, a little newborn child hasn't had much opportunity to demonstrate uh, anything but innocence. Well, maybe with some crying, your mother would disagree with that, you know, in the middle of the night. But you get my point, you know. You're like, this child has some needs, this child needs to be helped, this child needs to be fed. Uh, 
but innocent as a baby um, is something that this particular verse seems to call into question, just the very notion. He, said, he says here, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, there's something wrong with me from the start. And I don't think this is intended to be you know, a verse that we look at and say, yeah, there was something wrong with David from the start. <laughs> that guy was a real problem. He had you know, a bad start. No, I think there's a sense in which this is intended to, to be a statement about not just David, but about all of us. There's something about us that's gone wrong. And the doctrine that uh, uh, addresses this is the doctrine of original sin. Now, in the Reformed tradition, we kind of amp up the stakes. We like to use the term total depravity to address this. And I want to talk a little bit about that because total depravity, uh, I had some total depravity here just uh, yesterday. There's a great coffee that Tom brewed called Total Depravity. <laughs> it's very dark roast. <laughs> I like dark roast. Uh, but seriously, total depravity is, uh, is simply uh, a way of addressing this particular problem in such a way so as to communicate to us that there's no sort of recess to our inner being, an inner being that hasn't been touched by sin. doesn't mean you're as bad as you could possibly be. You can be worse. There's a cheerful thought. <laughs> you could be worse. doesn't mean that you're irredeemable. God created you for his glory, and those for whom Christ died are redeemed, and that particular problem, this problem of uh, uh, you know, indwelling sin is, is addressed through the uh, life and death and resurrection of our Lord. That's what redemption is all about, is taking what God has made which has been, that has been marred by sin and corrupted and redeeming it and in the process of redemption addressing that problem among others. Uh, but the thing I'm getting at here and, that, and what total depravity is, is, is intended to convey to us is the notion that total means every part of us. Your emotional life, your intellectual uh, life, your, your, your physical uh, person, your body, it's all been affected by sin. And consequently, the redemption that Christ secures for us is something that addresses all of that. It will all be addressed, and eventually we'll find ourselves glorified and in the presence of God because of the work of Christ. But it's not going to happen in this life. In the course of this life, we're going to have to struggle with that indwelling sin. When Cain killed his brother Abel, have you ever thought about that? Why, was he, why did Cain kill Abel? Well, because Abel was praised and he wasn't. Envy. The green-eyed monster, it's uh, another one of those... Uh, deadly sins, and I think sometimes we don't realize just how how deadly that particular sin is. I think we're seeing some of the effects of envy in our society at large in different areas right now, and it's not a pleasant thing to watch. But as we think about ourselves, I think it's important for us to remember that we're all we're all kind of somewhat like Cain. We resent when other people uh, are well off or 
when they're praised and we're overlooked. So what we really should seek is uh, to follow God's direction to Cain. God says to Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, but you must overcome it. You must struggle. You must fight the good fight. And when we think about fighting, sometimes we think about fighting people, or we think about fighting evil authorities, or we think about fighting crime. But the place to begin the fight is with yourself, mastering yourself. Because when you're the master of yourself, then you can master the situations that you find yourself in in a just way. We're told here, too, that what God desires is truth in the inner being. There's this, uh, this uh, reference to uh, what God is calling us to, to embody, and it's truth. And I think uh, starting with that challenge of addressing uh, what's wrong with us, um, that's a prerequisite uh, if we're going to offer the kinds of sacrifices God desires. Uh, David says that, that he wouldn't be able to justify himself by bringing the kinds of sacrifices that a guilt offering would, would uh, call for. We're told in verse 6 there, you delight with, uh, in truth in the inward being. And uh, he longs for the wisdom of God in the secret heart. And then there's a... Uh, a process by which the matter is addressed. There's a work that God is called on to perform, and we see referenced here uh, the need for God to do this. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If you go back to verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What, what's, what, what David is longing for is uh, for God to do something that only God can do. And that's address the root of sin in his own life. He's calling out for God's deliverance. He knows that he needs God to, to blot out that sin, to hide his face, but it's not enough just to simply blot it out or hide his face. He really wants to be purged. He wants to become a new creature. This is what he's longing for. And he says that if God does this for him, that he, is, he will declare his praise. So um, the idea that the, 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 the person has been delivered from sin and delivered from evil by God, has something to talk about, is something for us to remember. See that in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You know, I think in the background here, David's a king. He's surrounded by courtiers. You know how courtiers are. They're full of full of praise, flatterers, sycophants. They're not sincere. 
they're not really, you know, saying what they really mean or think. They're, they're saying things that they think the king wants to hear. What David wants to be able to do is praise God sincerely to say, you have delivered me. Thank you for your deliverance. I'm praising you in all sincerity because, what? You've done something for me that I can't do for myself. This is something I think that serves as a model for us and should be, you know, something that we carry along in the back of our minds all the time. We want to sincerely praise the Lord, not just say things so that we can be blessed because we think God wants to hear those things. And then he says, if you do this for me, I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, I'll have uh, something to, to say to them because that's me. <laughs> I'm a transgressor, and uh, if you teach me your ways, I'll pass on the information. There are some other folks who are going to benefit from this, not just me. Please deliver me and make this possible for me to teach others your ways. And then at the very end, we're told that this is going to have a good effect, not just for David but just uh, in, and just in terms of his own interests, but for God's people. Look at verses 18 and 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Offerings of thanksgiving. Not guilt offerings, but offerings made because of gratitude. And the walls will be made secure. Now, that's one of the jobs of a king, of course, is to make sure that his people are secure, protected. The walls of Jerusalem will be sound. But it's uh, 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 something that David needs God to do in his life first. He needs God to, to secure his own interest through forgiveness and cleansing. And then the walls of Jerusalem will be built up. And I think this is something we need to remember, just generally speaking. We're not just thinking about walls with regard to Jerusalem, but the law of God establishes some boundaries for us. And boundaries are a good thing. The only people who don't think boundaries are a good thing are people that want other people's stuff. The people who have stuff that they don't want other people to take think that boundaries are great. And what we need is for God to strengthen the boundaries. We need God to strengthen the boundaries in our own church. We've got great folks here, but you know what I'm getting at. And certainly we need to see boundaries uh, strengthened in our society. There's a kind of ordered liberty, kind of freedom that is really moral in character. And it's moral in character because it acknowledges that God is the Lord, that everyone belongs to him and not and consequently can't be uh, sinned against without repercussions, and that the laws that God gives us are good and, and intended to be a blessing to us and also a means by which he's glorified. All these things are in play. Now, of course, when we think about ourselves and our own sins, this particular passage is a really good one to have uh, your uh, Bible, you know, sort of... Uh, Earmarked for. I think that it's a, it's a good passage, this particular psalm is a good passage to visit on a regular basis. Because it, it not only 
tells you the truth about yourself, it also gives you a reason to hope because of God's mercy. The mercy that we see in David's life and the mercy you can know in your own life. In spite of the fact that even after you've received mercy, you can still have to deal with the consequences. I'm going to end with a kind of lighthearted illustration uh, because this has been a pretty heavy uh, message. But I remember years ago when Marla and I were living hand-to-mouth, we were involved in urban ministry in Boston, uh, I uh, wrote some checks anticipating that uh, a check that I deposited would clear before the checks arrived at the bank for payment. Didn't happen. <laughs> I ended up with a I guess maybe half a dozen fees uh, of $20 or more. And at that point, you know, that's what was real money. <laughs> I remember going to the bank and, and speaking to one of the uh, vice presidents. They used to actually be in the bank in those days. And I remember talking to him and saying to him, I'm here right now uh, not uh, in the interest of justice. I have no uh, basis uh, for, you know, a just decision that would work out favorably for me. What I'm here for is mercy. <laughs> Please be merciful to me. And I remember the, the, the look that guy had on his face. He had never had that appeal ever made. He'd heard, imagine, a number of stories about why, you know, uh, the person should be... Uh, treated the way they wanted to be treated, but he'd never come across anybody that just said, it was my fault, I, I should have waited longer, <laughs> please forgive me. And the bad news is, is that the bank didn't have any store of grace. <laughs> there was no uh, you know, owner who stepped in at that moment and said, yeah, no problem, That's, uh, I'll take care of that for you. Now he just said to me, I, I said, he actually said, I really wish I could, I really wish I could, but I, I just can't. The good news, of course, at this point for us, is Christ has paid for our sins. If we cry out in mercy and tell the truth about ourselves and not try to explain it all away with a rationalization, you know what a rationalization is, a rationalization. We don't try to pull that move and just own it. Well, that passage from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 applies. If you confess your sins, he will forgive you of your sins. If you decide to stay in the dark, what you are doing is you're accusing God of being a liar as you lie. That's not a good course of action. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for working in David's life, a man who was after your own heart, but was also a man who suffered uh, from not only the the impulse to sin, but the consequences of sins quite profoundly. And thank you for instructing us through his life. We know we have a, a better king that we serve, the Lord Jesus, the son of David who surpasses David in every way. Help us, uh, Heavenly Father, to trust you because of what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.